Hey guys, thanks for hopping on. If you're ready to start, if you guys have any questions, you can go ahead and raise your hand and, oh, there we go. Now I'm a little new to this, guys. I did a, a, a Twitter Spaces with Mike Green the other day and he kind of co-hosted it. I think I've got it. So Turbo, I know you had your hand up. Let me go ahead and invite you to speak. Hopefully that worked. Okay, Turbo, can you can you go ahead? Okay, let me go over to the requests here. Okay, so Entropy Dynamics. <laughs> can you go ahead and hey, can you speak? Hey, what's going on, Jordan? There we go. Hey, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I guess I'll just hop straight into my question then about, sure. uh, you know, would money lead to smaller government? Um, yeah. And just quick disclaimer, I've, I've been following your work for years. I have a ton of respect for what you do, and I've... I've, I've really tried to to better understand your thesis and where you're coming from this. Um, my my point that I'll make here is that I, I think we're just getting the causality a little bit backwards, right? In terms of government would only be able to operate with the resources that they have. So if there was, and let's not even go to the extreme and say like a full-on gold standard, but if, if there was something more of a, of a limit or a restriction that it would it would slow down on government accesses everything from all the all the extra interventionist wars all the way down to you know congressmen having an eight-person staff um so let, let me just go ahead and uh, pause there yeah well it's a, a great question and the more i think about this topic i think we need to separate limited government from small or big government. So I agree that sound money can limit the size of government, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have small government, right? To your point, if you go back to, let's just go back to 1862 with the Legal Tender Act, the federal government literally started printing money in greenbacks and that was to fight the Civil War, and that increased the money supply and created this inflation that none of us really want. But my point is, although, you know, let's say a Bitcoin standard or a gold standard, if we were to adhere to that, might eliminate those huge spikes in government spending, which you could say would, quote-unquote, limit government, I don't know that it would prevent big government. I think those two are separate. So let me give you an example. Let's just forget about deficit spending altogether and pretend that currently the government doesn't deficit spend at all. Going back to the 1940s, 45, regardless of the top marginal rate, the amount of revenue coming into the federal government as a percentage of GDP has been about 18%. So then you go ahead and add state and local to that, and that's going to be from two sources, tax revenue, and then also borrowing. But I think it's safe to assume that the borrowing that's happening at a state and local level isn't uh, impacted by base money or the Fed's balance sheet, right? So if you just take federal 
tax revenue and assume they spend every dollar, you're already at 18%. Why? Because people have voted that they want the government to spend that much money. And then when you combine that with state and local, it gets you darn close to, let's say, 25% or 30%. I don't know what the exact number would be. But it takes you to a realm where I think all of us who are advocates of freedom, liberty, free market capitalism, and small government would categorize that as quote-unquote big government. Now, to your point, would it put a limit to where the government couldn't be, let's say, 70% of GDP? Possibly. Possibly. And it could definitely limit those spikes that you see, Civil War, World War One, World War Two, or maybe even during the COVID pandemic in 2020, when we saw M2 money supply increase by 25%. But again, because it would limit those spikes, it doesn't necessarily mean that it would lead to small governments if the people voted to have government spend to the tune of, let's call it 30% of GDP, and were willing to allow the government to tax them, regardless of whether the government was taxing gold, dollars backed by gold, or, or Bitcoin. And, and that's really my point. But does, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think it does make a lot of sense. And I, I, I think that one of the good distinctions you drew there was between limited government and, and big government. Right. I, I think this goes back to, you know, Milton Friedman's point in saying that, you know, the, the people do have a share of, of responsibility in this, in that we can't look at these politicians as if they're Santa Claus and they're going to give us a bunch of things. The um, mm-hmm. the the bill is going to come. And, and for me, the concern is that the bill comes in the, the moral hazard of bailouts. And the, the consistent increasing um, government intervention financially and kind of how that starts to warp and, and shape expectations for the long term. So that's that's the thing I'm, I'm concerned about. Now, there I couldn't agree with you more because people have pushed back rightfully so and said, well, whoa, 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 time out, George. You're the guy that wears the end the Fed hat. You're the guy that that has got the FOIA request with Robert Barnes, possibly a lawsuit against the Federal Reserve. So what are you talking about here? Why? How are you saying that uh, sound money wouldn't prevent that? Or how are you going so far, you know, not to go off topic, but to say that the Fed really doesn't impact money, it's more so the commercial banking system. And, and it's you hit the nail on the head. I think the problem with the Federal Reserve isn't necessarily that they impact the money supply. It's they, number one, manipulate the price of money. And money or dollars are one half of every single transaction. So if you think about manipulating one half of every transaction, there, there, there is no price discovery. It's, it's, it's not real. It's like Jim Grant says. It's basically a hall of mirrors. Now, where I would differ is most people, uh, well, I don't want to put words in Schiff's mouth, but, you know, I, I'm, Schiff's a good buddy, and I, would, I think he would say 
well, the Fed always keeps interest rates artificially low. And that, I don't know about that one. I've given that a lot of thought as well. And I would agree that the price the Federal Reserve sets on short-term rates is artificial. But I do think at some times it can not only be artificially low, but it could be artificially high. And uh, a lot of, uh, well, a lot of people in general assume that you have to get interest rates above the CPI. You got to have real interest rates in order to bring down the rate of inflation. But if you go back to the 1800s or even the 1940s, I and mean, that's a great example, how we had yield curve control. So the Fed didn't allow the long end to get above 2.5%, if my memory serves me. And in 1947, we got up to the CPI was 19.3%, maybe 19.6%. And without the Fed raising rate, so the front end of the curve, I think, was pegged at like 40 basis points. And like I said, the long end was pegged at 25 and you had CPI up at 19.6, we'll call it. And within two years, the CPI had gone all the way down to deflation, to where it was roughly negative 2 or 3%. So that's another example of how you don't necessarily need to have positive real rates in order for the CPI to come down, because as you guys know, a spike in consumer prices can be a result of additional demand on the, let's say, currency unit side, but it can also be something involving supply side as well, or a combination of both, which is what I think we saw in 2020 and 2021. So again, my point is, I think that's their cardinal sin, is manipulating the price of money at the front end of the curve, sometimes too high, sometimes too low. And the other cardinal sin is the bailouts. I think that that is spot on a an experiment or a thought experiment i've tried to use a couple times well often is looking at quantitative easing and my view is that quantitative easing doesn't really add liquidity because that would assume the bank reserves are more liquid than the treasuries themselves and I don't think that's true, especially for non-bank financial institutions or banking institutions. Those treasuries, I think you could argue, are actually more liquid than the bank reserves themselves. And it would also, QE, you know, adding liquidity, actually causing the market to go up uh, without looking at psychology, is also kind of the view that the Fed is the son of the monetary solar system is kind of the way I see it in my mind. And I, I think if you really get into the the, the research and, and think about it, it, it it's I don't think that's I don't think it's even possible. I think that's the commercial banking system is the sun and the Fed is just the earth that kind of revolves around it. So anyway, my point is if it is true that the only thing QE does is really have some sort of psychological impact on the market to where it's a signal to the market that, hey, the Fed has your back. If we go back to long-term capital management at the end of the 1990s, or if we look at the GFC, let's assume for a moment that the Fed or the central planners would have allowed those entities 
to go bust to where they say, you know what, we're going to go ahead and, and assume that Jupiter's creative destruction is the way to go. Let's say they let all those entities go bust. So the market didn't assume that the Fed had their back. There was no Fed put. But then let's also assume in 2009 and 2011 or 12, whenever it was, they did quantitative easing. Would the market still have gone up? And whenever I think about that, I always come to the same conclusion. And my answer is no, I don't think it would have. So I think those are the real two cardinal sins, the bailouts and the Fed manipulating the price of money at the short end of the curve. I don't think we can peg them with uh, all the sins of the universe on the monetary side of the equation, because again, I think that is really the realm of the commercial banks, and I don't think the Fed has anything to do with it. You know, one thing I'll, I'll also insert, just to give you some food for thought, is, and I had this discussion with Bob Murphy the other day, and the more I research it, the more I find data to back this up. And we assume that the banking system creates loans or extends credit around the bank reserves. So the more bank reserves there are, the more balance sheet capacity they have. So if they're increasing M2 money supply by extending credit, well, you got to lay some of the blame on the Fed because the Fed is, you know, kind of behind the scenes, the Wizard of Oz saying, okay, we need to increase M2 money supply. So we're going to go ahead and, and do quantitative easing or we're going to give the banking system more bank reserves. And therefore, the banking system will lend more because they'll have more balance sheet capacity. But what you actually find out, and Bob referenced the 2014 paper from the Bank of England, and I've read that several times. And I've actually also found several instances where the Fed has come out and said this as well. They don't create bank reserves, and then the banks lend based on the amount of reserve they have. It's actually the opposite, where the banking system creates loans. And then, uh, let me be clear, this is prior to 2007, or this is prior to QE1. But historically, the, the, the New York Fed's trading desk looks at the overnight rate, their, what they're trying to target as far as the FOMC overnight rate, and then they try to predict maybe two or three months out how much banks are going to lend. And then let's just assume there's a 10% reserve requirement. And I don't think that really matters either, but let's just assume there's a 10% reserve requirement. Then the New York Fed would actually create enough reserves by buying treasuries to make sure that the banking system had the reserves they needed to go ahead and extend the loans based on the trajectory of their current lending. So it's actually reverse, where the bank lending determines how many reserves are in the system. It's not the reserves in the system determining how much banks lend. And so, again, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent there, but I think that's very, very crucial to uh, you know, understanding the 
impact of sound money and restricting base money and restricting the Fed and what that would do and what that most likely wouldn't do. Okay, so let's see. We've got, let me go ahead and click on this gentleman. Entropy. Oh, no, I think you were already a speaker. One from speakers. Yeah, so you can go ahead and ask another question if you want. Sure, yeah. And, and sure, yeah. Thank you for the, the overview on the banking side. I think you're much, much more well-versed on, on that area than I am, and I'm going to have to research some of your some of your work on that um the the comment that i want to add to the discussion is that i think these these forces really do reflexively build on each other and i i think you're 100 percent right with the manipulation of short rates yeah um back in i believe it was 82 don't quote me on that specifically but i believe it was 82 where reagan approached volker and said you're not you're not going to keep raising rates um, so like the, the, the way the forces work together in unison really allows government to continue to overextend its power. And then you, you fast forward a little bit into, I believe early 2009. And I, I have the transcript somewhere, maybe I can find it and, and put it in the chat after this. Um, but you have the transcript where Bernanke just laid out all of the I think this was just before QE1, but all of the the buying of mortgage-backed securities and mm. treasuries, and it was it was so abundantly obvious that what he was saying was, "Lever up, take risk, we got you." And I th I think that that when these forces really do start to align their interests and kind of overextend their power, it just gets more and more and more problematic and just increases um, future risk. And then the the last thing I'll say is, I, I can't speak exactly to the degree in which, you know, if like, would the market have gone up as much as it did without QE? I also don't think so. But I, I think mechanically in, in studying volatility, you can really see that like what what the VIX wants to see is QE or some some form of just perceived stability in order to kind of keep trending downwards and downwards. Yep. And I've I've, I've really studied uh, Christopher Cole's work. I've read all his research papers. I've I've watched all of his videos. I I, I believe you you yeah you two did a video once too. I've I've seen that. No, I'm actually good friends with, with Chris. We've talked to each other several times, and he spoke at uh, my Rebel Capitalist Live event in Houston. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, I I, I consider myself a, a disciple of Chris's, and um, when 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 that's that's kind of the point that that I would drive there is that when there is that QE or just that that source of stability coming from a, a Bernanke. Um, you you really do see volatility markets react in the way that the forces want them to work, whether it be political, whether it be political pressure, or whether it be Fed policy. Um, it, it starts to get problematic. I completely agree. I just think that's the result of psychology, not mechanics. So the the, the fact that the banking system or the market participants believe the Fed has their back, then they go ahead and the banking system starts creating more loans and they start taking more risk. They go further out the risk curve. And that is what 
creates the dynamic where the stock market goes up. It isn't necessarily the fact that the system was starved for liquidity and the Fed injected that liquidity. And then once the system had the liquidity it desired, then all of a sudden it was able to start buying shares hand over fist. You know, one of the, another quick thought experiment I'll give you on, on that note is if you assume that that is something mechanical in the plumbing, you, you would have to assume that all of these hedge fund managers and market participants are sitting on a bunch of treasuries and they're saying to themselves, oh my gosh, I wish I could buy stocks, but I can't because I've just got these stupid treasuries. As if they couldn't sell them, buy the stock, or if a hedge fund couldn't just use them as collateral and repo to get the cash they need to buy the shares. So it's like these hedge fund managers or market participants are sitting there saying, oh my gosh, I've got this balance sheet full of treasuries. And if only the Federal Reserve would come in and buy these stupid treasuries from me, because there's no other way I can sell them or use them as collateral, then I could go out and buy stocks. You know, when you, when you look at it from that standpoint, it seems kind of silly. And, but I think that's reality. <laughs> so that's another reason why I think that QE was most, it did definitely have the impact of lowering vol and all that stuff. But I, I just, I believe that it's just all psychological. All right, David, do you want to chime in, buddy? Yeah, George, uh, thanks for doing this. Um, like everybody says, uh, great work. Really appreciate your content. Um, so my position is government will shrink at the hands of Bitcoin and partially gold. Um, but I do believe it will get worse before it gets better. Okay. And so my speculation, which I imagine you agree with, is Treasury will issue more bonds to fund supply chain onshoring, the impending energy crisis, you know, defense, interest, entitlements, all the Grumman stuff, and even the entire euro dollar collateral shortage. The Fed, I believe, will monetize that debt causing financial repression, and in turn, we'll see a divestiture of global savings away from bonds to hard assets like Bitcoin and gold. So that will cut off one source of funding for the government. But then I believe the government will look to the MMT playbook to use taxation to quell the inflation, but also to continue funding itself, and most importantly, to heavily tax the avenues people use to escape the repression. So things like real estate, stocks, custodians of gold, anything that governments can get their hands on, they will heavily tax. Mm -hmm. um, however, and I think this is the key point, is there are ways to borrow dollar-denominated stablecoins against Bitcoin in a self-custodial manner in a non-scam you know, system mm -hmm. at 0% interest outside of a centralized intermediary. And so this could allow Bitcoin holders to avoid the financial repression simply as a product of the usual store value, it's a hard asset, as well as avoiding the taxation by borrowing against that asset outside of a bank or a financial institution, which Uncle Sam could go knock on the shoulder of somebody and say, hey, we're taking over these Bitcoin. All of this can happen while still allowing Bitcoiners to access their spending power. And so I'll end on this and say the point I'm making is that eventually government shrinks because it will suck the value in real terms out of every avenue possible, first with financial repression in the bond market, second with taxation. But then all that is left that is, in my opinion, the least susceptible, I will never say anything's perfectly impervious to it, is this Bitcoin option when combined with this ability to borrow against it. Well, let's drill down on that and let's just focus on what we were talking about earlier. Let's just focus on federal spending or federal tax revenue at 18% right now. 
walk through your scenario and and let's try to figure out how if we were on a bitcoin standard meaning bitcoin was base the base layer base money how that would bring that 18 percent down if people voted for things such as social security such as defense such as all these things that the government spends money on i hear you and and i know that ultimately it's not something that we can control you know it's like when the masses realize that they can you know essentially just print themselves money yeah they effectively will and i know that's going to be like the ultimate kind of like gotcha ace in the hole but my point is is that is that if you have some sort of escape valve which is again like allowing citizens to go into these hard assets and borrowing against them outside of taxation it's going to blunt the effects of, of, of exactly how how much the government can spend and so over time these things will start to rebalance i hear you and, and i think that you're absolutely correct that you can't fully stop this government spending and that the the gdp growth of of you know a country is, is kind of correlated to the, or inversely correlated to, to the government's idea. I'm like i hear you that's all valid but but I, I i do think this is a reasonable escape valve that can help reduce the ultimate government spending versus if we just had no choice and everybody had to sit in bonds and the government mandated that all corporations buy you know federal debt yeah again i think we can it's the difference between limited and and big and uh i, I want to be very clear one of my main reasons for talking about this is 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 not to bash bitcoin or or sound money or anything like that i think bitcoin is fantastic now i might see it having different advantages as a lot of people like i think everyone should own bitcoin to have some sort of purchasing power outside of the system and i think that's exactly what you're you're getting at but the reason i kind of am, am, am pushing this subject is because i see a lot of people just sitting back and saying well yes the country's going to hell in a handbasket but I'm going to go ahead and take a, a passive role. And you know, what I talked about with Mike Green was the difference between active optimism and passive optimism. And I'm just trying to encourage people to be actively optimistic and not passively optimistic. So I see, and I'm sure you guys see this all the time on Twitter or social media as well, where people say, oh, I'm just going to hold a Bitcoin or I'm just going to stack silver or I'm just going to you know, do whatever with gold, and that's going to fix the problem. I don't have to do anything else because I know that if I just adopt Bitcoin, then the rest of the problems just magically go away because that's a silver bullet. This is what I'm trying to really encourage people to think through because there's so much enthusiasm in the sound money space with the gold bugs and with the bitcoiners but if if that enthusiasm is exclusively directed towards just hodling and that's going to solve all of our problems i i don't think that moves the needle to the degree to which we move the needle or to the degree to which we need to move the needle i think a lot of that energy that's just going into hodl 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 needs to go into persuading people that, hey, we've got to lower taxes. Hey, we've got to have 
smaller government. And here are the benefits of smaller government. See, in my mind, there's, if you're looking at, you know, 100% of your mental bandwidth, I would say 80, 90% should be towards this active optimism where you're trying to persuade your friend and family member, Fred, or I'm out there on YouTube, let's say, trying to persuade people that we need to have lower taxation, we need to have lower government spending as a percentage of GDP, and you need to vote that way for heaven's sakes. Now, a lot of people say, oh, George, well, you're pissing into the wind. Okay, but that's that, that, that's our only option right now. I'd rather piss in the wind than just sit back and do nothing. And then the, allocate 10 or 20% of your mental bandwidth to talking about the benefits of sound money or a Bitcoin standard or a gold standard, what have you. But I think hopefully you, that I've made my, I've communicated my point and I'm just concerned that there's so much enthusiasm that's exclusively focused on, you know, if we just had sound money, all of our other problems go away. And what I'm saying is that, no, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think that it's a panacea. I don't think it's a silver bullet. And I think we need to work a lot harder and we need to, again, allocate the majority of our mental bandwidth to persuading our, our friends and family members or, or whatever you can do in your own personal life to try to promote the message of freedom, liberty, free market capitalism, small, limited governments, and, and the benefits that that would accrue to the poor and middle class. I think that makes sense. Uh, it makes me think of this analogy of the kind of like the horn of plenty. Like there is this assumption that people just think that products and services just appear, that they're just automatically there. But, you know, I think you've mentioned it, Shift has mentioned it so many times, it's ultimately the producers and the goods and services in the economy which give money. And so that is valid, that 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 we cannot sit here and just preach, you know, non-sovereign hard money and just expect this kind of cornucopia, this horn of plenty just to refill itself. And that is very valid. At the same time, I think that you have to fix the incentives which most efficiently allow for the allocation of time and resources to in turn produce the products and services. So I'm, I'm not stepping definitively into either camp, but but I am making the point, and, and, and I think that you would agree with to an extent that that when you're on a hard money standard, the, the pricing signals are more pure and it allows the proper incentives to kind of create what you're saying, which is the products and services. Yeah, that's a great topic. And, and that's really interesting because I've thought about Bitcoin as a base layer two different ways. One, from a standpoint of full reserve banking. From the other standpoint of fractional reserve banking, or like free banking that we had during the 1800s. And I know the argument is, okay, we've got 12 inches and a foot, and we need to maintain that, and that is going to increase productivity, and we're all, the society's gonna benefit, and we're gonna have a better economy as a result. But that implies that what we need are stable prices. And if we had, full reserve banking, and if prices were declining, that would be unstable prices. You know, it's, it's not just prices increasing that are unstable. It, you know, if you have prices decreasing at the same rate, you could say that that was unstable as well. And I think the, the pushback there, rightfully so, would be, well, George, that would, is still a result of the free market, and you're not manipulating the amount of currency units. So therefore, 
that although you, you have price changes, those aren't going to be detrimental because they're a result of creating more goods and services. But then you add on fractional reserve banking and you say, okay, well, now we're going to go ahead and increase the claims on the base layer, let's say. And that is going to increase, let's just say M2 money supply for lack of a better term. And therefore, it, 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 is, is that still 12 inches, even though you're increasing M2, but it's, it's 12 inches because the government and the central bank isn't involved? Or is it only 12 inches if you're using full reserve banking, understanding that there's a probability that you have inconsistent prices from the standpoint of prices going down. I've got a chart right in front of me that I've I've talked I talked to Breedlove about a bunch of people from 18 roughly 70 to 1900, and you know prices went down over that period by 45 percent. So technically that's unstable prices. Now I would say that's good. <laughs> that's a good thing, but I don't know. Are are unstable prices with full reserve 12 inches or is, uh, you know, stable prices with an increasing M2 money supply, fractional reserve, 12 inches, assuming there's no manipulation by the central planners being, be it a, central bank or a government? I mean, it's an interesting question, and I don't have I don't have the answer. Well, I'm a little bit of a contrarian Bitcoiner. Uh, I, unfortunately, I say I'm kind of hated by everyone uh, in that sense. Um, but I actually believe that we can recreate a free banking model on what people are calling DeFi. And so you mm. could have Bitcoiners that, you know, self-custody, you know, all the maxi kind of tropes that, that you already know, but you could have these protocols which act as banks and they can issue stablecoin IOUs. And some of those may be fractional reserve. Some of them may be full reserve. It'll be this Cambrian explosion. Instead of having legal in-person real life entities, you'll have these kind of digital entities or those these protocols. The key difference is twofold. And two of the reasons why free banking had failed is, um, is one, because of government regulation would ultimately just kind of shut them down. But you now have this arbitrage when you can operate in this uh, digital space. And the second thing is all of the assets and all of the liabilities that any time get issued on chain in the DeFi protocol are cryptographically auditable and transparent. And so we're essentially extending the ability of, say, a Bitcoin node to just verify the money supply of 21 million to now being able to verify and audit the financial derivatives issued as an extension, a part of that. And so you kind of tell the system, you say, look, you have this hard money base where if you want to stay and operate solely in that zone, you can, or you can also use these kind of differing free banks of all these different varieties. But because there is full information transparency and there's perfect information, then proper note dueling can ensue where certain protocols can and will be attacked. Yeah. And I had kind of alluded to this in my original kind of question I posed to you where we're starting to see protocols where, where people are able to issue you know, fully reserved, over-collateralized Bitcoin-backed stablecoins at 0% interest. Like that idea alone, the ability to borrow against your Bitcoin at 0% interest and have full auditability knowing that your claim can be redeemable for Bitcoin, that is like so freaking amazing. 
And I think we're starting to see just like whispers of this in the Bitcoin community of people finally starting to make this realization, both on a like on a like an intellectual level, but even on a technical level with with I, I'm plugging into the weeds here, but but things like zero knowledge rollups. And so I know that's out of the scope of this conversation, but 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 I'm saying like there is a path forward and one that I don't think that many people, including you, have touched on yet. Well, again, I want to be clear. I think that's incredibly exciting. And I am a proponent of exploring these ideas, especially if it's a result of what the free market wants. So I'm by no means uh, anti-Bitcoin or wh whatever people label me as. Um, I, I, I just want to be realistic about what is the probabilities based on history so when you talk about um you know some of these innovations it, absolutely it's exciting but i do think to your point there would be a market for fractional reserve even under a bitcoin standard because we saw that back in the 1800s where if there was no market for fractional reserve the government wasn't involved all these full reserve banks would have monopolized everything. They, they, they would have wiped out all the fractional reserve banks. But it was actually the opposite because, I'm, I'm just assuming, the reason the fractional reserve banks were so much more popular is because they offered a higher rate of interest. So people said, okay, well, I understand your fractional reserve, but if my banknotes are still redeemable for gold, I'd rather have my gold earn 5% compared to 2% or something like that. So I think that that, you know, just looking into the future, that would exist. And to your point, I think that's the most likely outcome is that the free market produces both full reserve, fractional reserve, and I do think a lot of the people would choose that fractional reserve. Then it's just a matter, and obviously, you know, the technical components of this far better than I do. But then it, I would wonder how the individual, the individuals who were, were receiving the paper claims, if you want to use that term, on the Bitcoin would react. Like, would they still accept the paper claim? Would some people not accept them? I don't know, but, uh, you know, we just, it, that's what's fantastic about the free market is none of us knows. And you just throw everything up against a wall and see what sticks. And maybe because of the additional precision and the additional transparency that it, that could be kind of maybe not a solution, but a way to make the entire system far more efficient because right now, how do you determine how many what M2 is with precision. You can't. It, it's just, or how do you determine what CPI is or GDP or any of these numbers? And uh, if that information was more pure, I don't see how that would be a bad thing. Exactly. Um, I'll, I'll step down. Um, I'll just say I, I've kind of expanded on some of these ideas and in, in, in the pinned tweet on my profile, not to plug myself, but if people are curious on them, uh, George, I want to say thank you. I think you do great work, even though you occasionally poke fun at Bitcoiners. And um, I'll let everybody else speak. Thanks. All right, thanks. All right. Luke is here. Let's get Luke up. Luke, what's up, brother? Hey, hey, hope you're doing well. 
<laughs> yeah, I saw your little the, the the tweet that you did with the video of Josh. That looked awesome. I can't take all the credit for that. Some uh, whiz kid in Philippines uh, whipped that little reel up. Um, all I did was interview Josh. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Look, I got a point. It's probably pivoting a little bit away from the current discussion. So I could bring it up later if you guys wanted to stay on what we're talking about at the moment. Oh, just, yeah, let's just bring it up and we'll just kind of hash it out and go from there. Yeah, so in our discussion the other week, something that really got me thinking that you said was um, the government just being able to put like a sales tax at the register of every single grocery shop you go and spend at. And you... Yeah, that would have been a great question for David. He, he probably would have thought about that quite a bit, but go ahead. Sorry. Hope, no, that's okay. Hopefully David's still around, but something that, like I've given a lot, a lot of thoughts since, and something that I didn't bring up in our chat was if we do hypothetically move to this Bitcoin standard, so we have to assume Bitcoin is appreciating in price significantly if we do head towards a Bitcoin standard. So as, you know, these individuals who do have a lot of Bitcoin and they're invested in Bitcoin today, the closer we get to hyper-Bitcoinization, they're going to be more capitalized and they're going to be the ones who are paying the large, you know, majority share of the taxes in their individual countries and nations. Like, I, th I think Cal, right. Cal you jump in. Well, I, I think where you're going with this, correct me if I'm wrong, is the people that will be responsible for paying the lion's share of taxes will most likely be limited government people by the fact that they have more Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, well, partially, partially, but okay. they, the, the, the ones who are paying the lion's share of taxes, say in California, where I, I don't know the exact figures, but I think it's like the top 1% in Cali pay something outrageous, like 30 or 40% of the state's taxes. Like, yeah. if, if they're sitting on significant Bitcoin holdings... And they appreciate significantly in value. And the United States tries to get tyrannical and puts a 20% uh, sales tax at every single merchant store in California. I, I just think they're the kind of people who would move to like an El Salvador where there are, say, comparatively lower taxes. And maybe, maybe that is one mechanism where Bitcoin could lead to a smaller government and a government wouldn't be able to get their, I think it's 18% of... Uh, is that how much taxes they're collecting as a portion of GDP at the moment, 18%? Usually. That's kind of been the average going back to 1940 at a federal level. Yeah, just yeah. so that idea of you know a sales tax at the register of every merchant really got me thinking. But then I kind of thought, well, you know, if, if these... Because obviously the everyday Joe isn't going to pack up and leave their, their entire family. Um, like, he, like he kind of mentioned in California, the everyday Joe isn't going to leave. But if the everyday mm -hmm. Joe has had significant net worth appreciation due to Bitcoin monetizing, they may actually be able to uh, be a little bit more mobile than they would have in the past. Yeah, a couple things there. I don't know. I think there's a higher probability of Bitcoin creating consumer price deflation, which is what you're talking about, especially if you have full reserve. And this is after, let's say, Bitcoin hyperization, or I don't know the term you use, but basically once Bitcoin is, is everything's pricing Bitcoin, let's say. Um, but again, Luke, my argument would be that it's, it's, it's highly probable, but it's not certain because even if you had 
21 million base layer. And even if you had, let's say full reserve, where basically base is broad, broad money. If the general public still wanted bigger government, I think you'd get it. And I think you could get big enough government to where it made the economy so inefficient that you might not see consumer price deflation. Now, maybe you got stable price up, something like that. But I, I do think it's possible that even with a Bitcoin standard, everything priced in Bitcoin and full reserve, if society wanted all of these goodies, and I, you know, I do think there might be a higher propensity for the people with a lot less Bitcoin, assuming that it was more concentrated, to your point, to actually want bigger government because, you know, all of the wealth is concentrated. Now, let's say the top 1% of the people who own Bitcoin. I'm not saying that would happen. I'm saying maybe you could kind of envision that. So that's what I'd say first is, is I don't know that it's a certainty that even under those conditions, you have consumer price deflation. Although I would totally agree that the probability would be pretty darn high. Now, to your next point, I would just see it like a VAT tax and or a sales tax, whatever you want to call it, where in order to get a business license, the government would force the entity to, you know, whatever, however they're processing payments to go ahead and set that up to where the government would have access to that so they could monitor their gross sales. And then that business would owe them X amount or X percentage of their gross sales. And I think you're right. Some people would move to El Salvador. Some people would move to XYZ country because they'd tell the government to pound sand. But I think that would be a very low percentage and the reason I say that is because of Puerto Rico right now. And Puerto Rico, for those of you who don't know, an American citizen can literally pay zero tax. Now, it's a maximum, I think, about 4% on business earnings. But this is an option that's available to everyone right now. And it is true that there are quite a few people that have moved down there Shift being one of them, but it, but look at the percentage of the 350 million Americans that actually moved down to Puerto Rico to take advantage of effectively zero tax, you know, not many. And I can, I know a lot of rich dudes, <laughs> let's say, and I can't imagine. Now I know there would be some like Max that would move down to El Salvador. But a lot of rich dudes that I know, they like their their lifestyle, even if they're having to pay, let's say they didn't have an income tax, but they had to pay like a 20% sales tax. They like their life in Scottsdale. They like their life in Aspen, in Boise, in you know Miami, let's say. And so... I just, based on kind of this 
micro experiment that we have with Puerto Rico, I totally agree that a lot of people would move, but I don't know that it would be enough to impact the government to the point where they'd say, holy cow, we've got to completely change this policy and we've got to lower the sales tax from 15% down to 10% or else another 100 million people are going to leave the United States and we're going to completely wipe out our tax base. I, I Possible, but I think it's very low probability. Do you think those probabilities potentially change in the future if the government continues to be more and more tyrannical? Because I'm kind of operating under the thesis that, you know, we're, you know the Brent Johnson thesis, dollar milkshake theory, we're living through a sovereign debt crisis. The US, as well as another 13 countries around the world, have kind of crossed that 130% debt Rubicon. So my kind of thesis is in the 2020s, Governments need high inflation. They need higher taxes. They need to some way, shape or form default on that enormous debt that they're carrying. So I'm kind of thinking that you're only going to see more and more breaches of, uh, let's say, trust. So cerveza sickness uh, was probably the first the first step that woke a lot mm. of people up. And I agree with you. It's gonna, it, I, I think it's going to take a long time. It could be decades. But I think if you look at, I like to look at California as an example just because I spent a little bit of time there. So population is essentially 40 million people. So 300,000 people left California in 2021. So obviously that's 0.1% of the population. I, I agree that's tiny. But if that continues for 10 years, all of a sudden that 300,000 has turned into 3 million people. So that's 1% of the population in California. And if hypothetically... If those numbers I regurgitated earlier were slightly accurate and 1% of Californians pay like 30 to 40% of the state's total tax, I don't know. I, I, I think we could be getting into a situation where governments in the future, maybe in a couple of decades, might have to begin just thinking about things a little bit differently. I hope. That's a hope. Yeah. Me, I, well, I agree. And obviously those statistics are accurate. And California is a perfect example. New York. New Jersey, and then the uh, beneficiaries are Texas, Arizona, Florida, etc. But again, what percentage of the three hundred thousand are staying in the United States, and what percentage are are, are moving to Puerto Rico? I, I think it would be the the majority would stay within the United States because you know culturally they're just kind of in their comfort zone, and at the end of the day. That, that real you know friends family culture it, it really really matters now if the United States goes into some sort of hellscape like Venezuela <laughs> then I I totally agree and another thing that you hit on Luke that I think is very important and it was one of my argument weaknesses and I had that conversation with Mike Green the other day and Obviously, I'm still a, a small government, limited government guy. And I think my ideas are good. But my argument, I realized in discussing this with Mike, that my arguments in some cases were very weak. And I think one of the weak spots for my argument was, okay, how do you define small government? Like, what, what, tell me what small government is. Well, let's, 
make it concrete, not just some sort of abstract. And when I was thinking about that, I said, well, with Mike, you know, well, it's government spending as a percentage of GDP. Maybe, but I think there's a lot more to it that you just hit on. So let's think through bureaucracy. I don't know that that would cost the government a lot. I mean, it costs them a little bit, obviously, to, uh, to enforce the rules. But let's just look at the lockdowns. I mean, did, did, that was the best example I can ever use of, quote-unquote, big government. But that might not necessarily increase government spending as a percentage of GDP. And we think about all of the ways that government impede our progress. And a lot of times, it's not just a result of them spending money, misallocating resources, malinvestments, etc. It's it's them creating some sort of barrier that makes doing business a lot harder. Like I had a conversation with my good buddy Robert Barnes the other day, and he was talking about this Amish guy that he's representing against, I think it's the federal government, and all this Amish guy was doing was selling like raw milk and things that for reasons I can't figure out are 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 now illegal. When I was a kid, raw milk, you could buy it anywhere. But I guess for now, I guess raw milk is somehow illegal. Okay, well, that might not be reflected in government spending as a percentage of GDP, but my goodness gracious, is that another great example of quote-unquote big government? So I need to do a better job of, of quantifying and being able to articulate what I mean by big government and what I mean by small government and giving specific, precise examples. So if I'm having another conversation with someone that's just got an incredible intellect like Mike, I, I can have stronger arguments. Yeah, George, I, I don't know. I listened to that debate with Mike and I, and I thought you did just fine. But something that just kind of popped up in, in my head at the moment is Maybe you can look at lots of different metrics to measure government. So the ones that kind of poke out to me right now is health, wealth, and education. So maybe you can look at the number of uh, health suggestions or recommendations 100 years ago versus today. And the same thing in education. Like, uh, like for example, in Europe, you can't even homeschool your kids. I think they're trying to make yeah. that illegal in many countries all across Europe. It's just incredible, isn't it? Outrageous. So, yeah, I, I mean, maybe there's a number of metrics you can look at in terms of education, health, wealth, so economic indications, and um, maybe you can do like a um, like a little tally, like how Mark and Alex Spetsky have the, um, they look at uh, Karl Marx's 10 uh, planks of communism, and Mark kind of points out that, hey, look, judging by what Karl Marx, the father of communism, wanted. He, he said there were 10 things essential for communism. In the US, we have seven out of 10. We are not capitalists. <laughs> we are closer to communism. So I don't know, maybe you could draw up some metrics like that because when Marx says um, that, it's very compelling. It's like, oh shit, seven out of 10? America, the capitalist, you know, the most capitalist country of the world is far more like communism. That's eye-opening for new people. So Yeah, I think that really hits home, things like that. And so I, I think I need to do a better job of that. Although, 
I do still think government spending as a percentage of GDP is a good rough proxy. Okay, so let's see. I'll go ahead and go to Deer. Mr. Deer will get him up here or her. Add a speaker. All right. Deer Pot, you're ready to go. Hey, George, how are you? Hey, Luke, it's been a while. <laughs> the, uh, good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you. Um, just for a little context, me and Luke used to have these discussions in tandem for hours on end. But, um, oh, cool. Um, yeah, I, I, I think for me. All right, Dia, you still holding that Bitcoin that I got you to buy or what? No, you got me to buy like almost the top, man. I should have listened to Dr. Solomon. But nevertheless, <laughs> the, uh, the, I, I think this is actually a very interesting discussion. And, you know, the, the, the real question becomes, I guess, in the absence of a, let's say, a monetary authority, which I guess, you know, whether it be the Fed um, or, or otherwise, um, I, I think that it leads um, to complications. And even if you were to look at somebody who I would say was a small government proponent, maybe not as much as like, the uh, guys in the Austrian camp, but somebody like Milton Friedman, I mean, he still agreed in the elasticity of money, of being able to grow the money supply. And I, I think that, you know, to some extent, you have to have something there that, that controls that. But I mean, would people say that that's sound money if you can still increase the money supply? I guess, you know, for hardcore monitor, like, you know, hardcore money guys, like, you know, people in the Austrian camp, probably not. Um, but I think that it's a it's a very important component of global finance and and um, global production is is the elasticity of money. Yeah, another interesting point to think through. Assuming that someone is of the mindset that you know we need freedom, liberty, free market capitalism, and therefore we also need. A fixed money supply. You cannot increase the money supply. We cannot have even fractional reserve banking, even if it's something like we saw in the 1800s that did not encompass government or a central bank, even though in the late 1800s it, it, it became, the government became more involved with the national bank. What's interesting about that is asking the question would that lead to, would that require government intervention in and of itself? So let's assume that people gravitated more so to fractional reserve banking under a new gold standard or under a Bitcoin standard, just like they did in the 1800s. Well, if the free market is producing that, then in order to go to a full reserve system, you would need the government, ironically, you would need the government to intervene and make fractional reserve banking illegal. So from a principle standpoint, I don't know where the full reserve guys and gals go with that. And, and that's a good question as well, George. And also, I mean, there's no law within the United States that prohibits people from opening a 100% reserve bank. I think that there's a reason that people haven't. That's because at that point, it's just a, a vault, right? And what's, you know, why don't I just hold my money under a mattress at that point, right? Like, well, they could, they could get an interest rate because they could lend out in a full reserve. That doesn't mean there's no credit. They're still lending out 
the, the, the people that park their money with the fiduciary, but they most likely would, wouldn't be able to pay a similar interest rate to a fractional reserve financial institution. Yeah, and I think that the, the banking fees would be absolutely astronomical as well mm. on the back end. Right. I, and there's there there was actually a monetary economist, which is oddly enough, he's I, I think he was actually one of the original cypherpunk guys, but I'm not sure if you've heard of George Selgin, but he's he's talked about that at length, right? Like the reason that there has never been a one hundred percent reserve system. But like even if you go back like really old school to Adam Smith, I think it's chapter two, volume two of the wealth of nations, Adam Smith says, like, do not squander resources on on the money supply and then since was you know insinuating that we should have a fractional reserve banking system and that actually worked really well um <clears throat> up until like the 1930s like even if you look north at the border the u.s was in crisis uh, because of the great financial or the great depression sorry canada was fine because the thing was you know we had a lot of regulations we had a lot of like regional banks that weren't very well diversified we didn't have these um um, let's say, uh, integrated, or we didn't have like, um, um, like cross state, like, um, borders, like they did in Canada, where you had like all of these banks that were essentially able to open up in different provinces. And so the Canadian banks actually didn't suffer any failures throughout the great depression, right. um, like the U S did. And I, I think that people put so much emphasis on the fed interfering in monetary policy, but really the commercial banks are the one even now i would argue who who still broadly run the show right if and in you know i know i think george you've talked with brent and to some extent that's part of his whole thesis right is that now banks are not incentivized to extend credit and therefore we have this shortage within the global financial market of, of dollars and so i i think that this is this is the problem right like when the fed does things sure it can influence how banks actually go about credit extension and, and what banks tend to do from a money supply standpoint like monetary aggregate speaking um but i i think that that's more the problem is is um there's this like kind of you know this aggregation between people not understanding that the commercial banks are broadly the ones who are in control of of the money supply and we kind of remove that monetary authority being the fed we would still have the elasticity of money. We just wouldn't have a Fed. But then, I mean, you would, you know, then it's up to the banks to, to make the decision. on how. Yeah, I mean, going back to the late 1800s, we didn't have the Federal Reserve and M2 money supply still increased by 400% from, call it 1870 to 1900. And that's consistent with what we saw from 1930 to 1960. And it's also interestingly enough, consistent with what we saw from 1990 to 2020. So people get caught up on 1971 quite a bit. And, oh my gosh, you know, now we have fiat money. So they're, they're, they're going to print infinite amounts and we're going to have all this inflation and yada, yada. Maybe, maybe. But you've got to remember that from 1990 to 2020, with a full fiat, just Fed insanity, repo madness, all of that stuff, M2 still went up to the same degree to which it went up under a full gold standard with no Federal Reserve whatsoever. 
I think what would benefit a lot of people is to start from the position that there is nothing, zero, that constrains the commercial banks from creating a loan other than counterparty risk. So it, it's not their, the Fed's balance sheet, it's not bank reserves, it's not interest rates. Interest rates might impact it slightly, but there's nothing that really, and I would go so far as to say regulation. If you want to look at the SLR, if you want to look at Basel III, I understand how they can impact technically, how they can impact bank decision-making. But I just look back at reserve requirements as an example. And the Fed came out with a paper in 2002, basically admitting that reserve requirements were utterly useless, a, a moot issue. Why? Because in the 1990s, the bank, well, this is one of the reasons. In the 1990s, the banks started these sweep accounts because the reserve requirement was only applicable technically to deposits. So if at 5 p.m. the banks could sweep the dollars into, into some sort of different account and then sweep them back in at like 5 a.m. or whatever, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go against their reserve requirement. So you saw M2 in 1980 go from 1.5 trillion in 2007 to roughly 7.5 trillion. And this is all while we have a similar type of reserve requirement. And it's why? Because the banks were just 10 steps ahead of the Federal Reserve or 10 steps ahead of the central planners and the regulators. And I think with Basel III or the SLR, whatever, I think there's still 10 steps <laughs> ahead of the central planners to which I would say, again, I don't think there's anything constraining them other than just perceived counterparty risk. So if they want to make a loan, they're going to make it. If they think they can lend $100 billion and it's going to be a profitable venture, they're going to figure out how to manage their balance sheet in order to get that done, period, end of story. So if you accept that, then you start to kind of reverse engineer the monetary system and you come to the realization that, well, wait a minute here, the Fed isn't that important. If I'm going to assume there's nothing that's really constraining the banking system. Another thing that I'd point out that I discussed with Joseph Wang today, we were looking at the Fed's balance sheet and this, this I just got this incredible chart that shows the history of their balance sheet from 1914 to 2019, or excuse me, 2009. And I looked at the amount of bank reserves in the system, but I'm looking at the chart right now. In 1953, 1953, there was about 20 billion worth of bank reserves. Now, fast forward to 2007. So, what, 20 or 54 years later? 
there was $40 billion worth of bank reserves. So in that 54-year period where M2 money supply most likely went from, I don't know, call it $500 billion maybe, up to $21.5 Well, no, it wasn't that. I'm talking about today's M2. It went from $500 billion, let's say, up to $7.5 trillion in 2007. But yet bank reserves only went from $20 billion to forty. How is that possible if the Fed is the one that's running the show? And a lot of people would say, oh, George, well, you know, you got bank vault cash and that goes against the reserve requirement. No, what you've got to understand, and I don't know how it was in 1950, so they could have changed the law. But I know now the Fed includes vault cash in that bank reserve number. And if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, you will see it increase substantially starting in about 1961 or so. And they start buying treasuries. And a lot of people would say, okay, well, this is because they were able to reduce the amount of gold that needed to back up the the liability side of their, their balance sheet. But I don't know if that's really or why it wasn't really to fund government spending because when you see their balance sheet increase the reason that liability side increase was because they were creating more currency uh you know federal reserve notes and then they were buying treasuries but i had this discussion with joseph and i said joseph was that them creating new m2 or was it simply the fact that the banks we're creating more customer deposits. And then those customers were coming in and saying, hey, we want the green pieces of paper. I want to buy a car in cash or something like that. And the because M2 is growing because of bank lending, there's more of a need or desire, demand, for green pieces of paper, in which case the Fed is creating more Federal Reserve notes, but those notes are going to replace the customer's existing commercial bank deposit liability, and therefore you're just trading a commercial bank deposit liability with Federal Reserve notes, which would have zero impact on M2 money supply on net balance. And Joseph said, yeah, that's, to his knowledge, that's exactly what was going on. So my point is, if you can look strictly at the bank reserves, and determine that the Fed had like zero impact (laughs) on the amount of currency units that were in the real economy chasing goods and services. All right, so let me bring up... uh, uh, So Luke, I'm gonna go ahead and take you off as a speaker because Mike was doing that. I know he had some sort of rationale as to why. But if you got something else, you know, make sure you raise your hand again. So I'm going to remove you, and then I'm going to go over to uh, DJ is the next one in line. And then David's got another request here. So David, let me go ahead, and we'll have DJ ask the question, but I'm going to make you a speaker as well. And then DJ, let's get up here. Add as speaker. Oh, hey, sorry. I'm... Okay. Yeah, DJ, are you there, buddy? DJ? 
Oh, fantastic. Okay, cool. Um, so my question was just around uh, the euro dollar system. And um, I guess relevant to your comments of the Fed having, you know, in many ways, a little uh, effect on, you know, the various uh, levers of money supply and, and cost of capital and so forth. I uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, like the, the BIS recently put out a report that said that, you know, the dollar is under the Fed's control, at least I believe is what it, what it said, was something like 20% of the total, uh, you know, U.S. dollar and euro dollar system, and other you know prominent finance types uh, continually go on and on and on about the the impact of the euro dollar system as, as being outside of the Fed's uh, ability to control. So, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, if what they're saying is the euro dollar system is outside of the Fed's purview, I completely agree. I mean, to think that. Let me go back a little bit. And when I was talking about there's nothing that really constrains the banks, another thing I think is useful to, to understand is the banks can settle transactions without the Fed's balance sheet. So I don't want to get too technical, but if Wells Fargo transfers a liability, so let's say, DJ, you bank with Wells Fargo and I bank with B of A, and you're sending, you're wiring me or zelling or whatever, a thousand bucks. So your bank would be sending a thousand dollar liability to my bank. Okay. Well, they can't just send them a liability. They've got to somehow decrease their liabilities. So everything nets out, or they've got to add an asset to the asset side of their balance sheet. So now that we've got the whole system is completely flushed with reserves, it's it's pretty easy to do that on the Fed's balance sheet with bank reserves. So in that example, your bank would send my bank a $1,000 liability. And at the end of the day, they would go ahead and net everything out. Let's just assume that was the only transaction. Then your bank would also send my bank $1,000 worth of bank reserves. So you've got the liability and the asset going to my bank, so everything nets out. Well, what they can do is most of these banks, especially in the euro dollar system, have accounts with one another. So now let's assume that, that your bank and my bank are in the euro dollar system outside of the Fed's purview. Your bank sends my bank that liability, but then my bank has an account with your bank. There's a checking account. So they go ahead and send you the liability, but then they go ahead and add the $1,000 to my bank's account with your bank. So what they've done is there's been no exchange of bank reserves. This is completely off the Fed's balance sheet, but they have your bank has sent my bank a thousand dollar liability and then they've added a thousand dollars to my bank's account therefore everything nets out another thing they can do is let's say your bank has an account you know both of the banks have accounts with one another when your bank sends my bank the thousand dollars if uh 
you know, my bank as an account, they can just deduct or if, excuse me, if your bank has an account with my bank, they can just deduct the thousand dollars from your bank's checking account to go ahead and, because that's a liability of my bank. Therefore, once they send that additional thousand dollars, that's a net increase, but they can go ahead and decrease the liability side by that thousand dollars by deducting the thousand dollars from your bank's checking account. So I know that gets very technical and it's way easier to understand if I've got a whiteboard or some sort of visual. But the, the main takeaway is that the banks can settle transactions without the Fed, dollar transactions. They don't need the Fed's balance sheet whatsoever. And so when you understand how that process works with those balance sheets, it further helps you understand how the Fed is, it's almost irrelevant uh, when it comes to money, when it comes to the global monetary system. Although I totally agree that at certain times they can impact it. So, you know, if they jack rates up to 10%, well, that's going to affect global dollar rates. And you would assume that all else being equal, the amount of dollars in the global system would decrease. So they, they do have that lever. And then if they are doing quantitative easing or quantitative tightening, when the transactions are, when the counterparty is a non-bank, then domestically they're impacting M2 as well. So an example, if they're doing quantitative easing, via the primary dealers and those treasuries that they're buying or mortgage-backed securities, or whatever, are coming off the balance sheet of a non-bank entity, that's going to increase M2, all else being equal. And doing quantitative tightening, it would decrease M2. So anyway, I hate to get too technical, but I, I think that it's just from a standpoint of understanding the system and from a standpoint of just being a better investor, when you can really start to understand how the bank's balance sheets are not constrained other than by counterparty risk and how the banks can settle without a central bank, just between one another. So what that means is there's no reserve, there's no cash, there's no nothing, there's no dollars. And that's why Snyder always says that the euro dollar system is cashless, and reserveless. So what he's implying there, or what he's saying, is that those banks are creating their own assets, their own liabilities, on their own balance sheets, and it's completely outside of the quote-unquote bank reserve system. So, and now, I, I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent, so I forgot your question. I'm <laughs> sorry about that. Well, no, I mean, you raise a lot of interesting points. Um, do we know, for example, what uh, percentage within the euro dollar system is, you know, what we'd call real uh, real dollars, real economy dollars, and, and just institutional bank-to-bank -bank dollars, or is it not divided up like that? I don't know, DJ. It's just, I don't know if there's any way of of knowing that, because it all happens in the shadows. And 
most of these banks really aren't regulated, at least they're not regulated by the Federal Reserve. So they're not submitting anything as far as t to my knowledge. So I, I don't know if there's any way to really quantify it other than to try to use those extremely esoteric metrics and tools that, that, that Snyder references occasionally, and then maybe just try to look at things like FX swaps and, you know, dollar denominated FX swaps and doing all that to try to get your head around how much of this stuff is out there on banks balance sheets, but anything specific, I have absolutely no clue. I just can, I just kind of have an idea of how the system most likely works just because I've drawn it out on the whiteboard literally thousands of times. Okay. Let's see. We've got uh, Gran. Let's bring him up here. Got a request. Gran Finale. Add a speaker. Okay. And then I'm going to go ahead and drop DJ and we can bring him back. I just, for whatever reason, Mike was saying it's good to kind of limit the amount of speakers. I don't know why. Okay. Mr. Gran, you're up, my friend. Hey, uh, thanks for uh, having me on. So I've been listening to you um, pretty much give the same explanation that you just gave uh, a couple of minutes ago regarding um, how the Fed played very little to no role in the quote-unquote injection of liquidity um, uh, into the economy. And I'm just trying to understand where exactly does the treasury get the money for the PPP loans and the SBA loans and for the bloated unemployment checks that people re received during the 2020 lockdowns if you're telling us that the Fed does not inject liquidity uh, into the uh, into the financial economy or I'm sorry into the day-to-day -day economy sure great question let me be clear when the Fed buys an asset from a non-bank entity via the primary dealers, that will impact M2. Absolutely. And what we saw in 2020 and into 2021 was a net increase in M2 of roughly 25%. And a, and a large portion of that was a result of the Fed buying so many assets, treasury, mortgage-backed securities from non-bank entities. But saying M2 increases is not the same, in my opinion, as saying an increase in liquidity. So why? Because that assumes treasuries are less liquid than the bank reserves or the commercial bank deposit liabilities, which would increase M2. You see, in other words, you're assuming the treasuries are less liquid than the cash that the entities are getting for those treasuries. And my point is, from the standpoint of the average Joe and Jane, that may be true. For, for, for one of us, you know, you can't take a treasury down and trade it for Chipotle. But that also assumes that that person couldn't just sell their treasury instantly 
instantly without the Fed and get those dollars and then go buy and down and buy the, the Chipotle, right? But I think the larger portion of those treasuries that were sold were, and then purchased by the Fed were sold by financial non-banks. So hedge funds, as an example. And a hedge fund, there there is zero difference. And, and I think there's a good argument for saying that treasuries are actually more liquid than the bank reserves themselves. Or, you know, if it's a banking, or the hedge, you know, if it's a fund part of some sort of bank, you know, they can go right into repo and take that those treasuries as collateral. They don't even have to sell them to get the, the face value of those treasuries in cash and then go ahead and do whatever they want to. So my point is I don't believe an asset swap, treasuries for cash, is an increase in liquidity because I believe that for the majority of players that are involved in this process, those treasuries are just as liquid, if not more liquid, than the cash they receive. Does that resonate? Is that a little bit better explained? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it, it is. It's just that very often you drive home the point that you and Jeff drive home the point that the Fed has very little to no impact impact um, uh, upon liquidity. And I, I think you you to make that statement a lot louder than the actual explanation you just gave me. And so listening, I can't help but scratch my head like, well, what are they talking about? The Fed, the, the, the Treasury would not have the money to dole out to everybody if not for the Fed. So Okay, so let, let me let me stop you right there and let's go through the process of the Treasury spending money. And let, let's see if that clears it up a little bit. So when Janet Yellen needs to spend, well, first of all, they've got the TGA, which is the Treasury General Account, and that is a liability of the Federal Reserve. That's basically the Treasury's checking account. So if she determines that there's only $50 billion in there and she's going to need some more money to send out stimmy checks, she's going to go ahead and issue bonds, Treasuries, and then auction them off. So the Fed can't technically come in and buy those treasuries directly from Janet Yellen. So the market goes to the banks, the primary dealers, or the, the average John Jane, the hedge funds, whatever, or foreign entities come in and bid for those treasuries. Let's say she's issuing $100 billion in treasuries. So then the entities come excluding the Fed, they buy those bonds, and then the proceeds in the form of bank reserves go from the banking system into the TGA. So Janet Yellen's account goes from $50 billion, or wherever it started, up to $150 billion. Okay, now what happens is Janet Yellen spends the money, let's say she spends the $100 billion on stimmy checks, that goes back into the economy. And depending on who purchased the treasuries, increases 
the M2 money supply, or it, it, it can be varying degrees. So as far as, and again, I, I don't want to get too technical, but if a non-bank buys it or a bank buys it, it it's a little bit different. But so then that uh, increases M2, assuming a bank bought it, or it's a net wash, assuming a non-bank entity purchased it, because by purchasing it, that lowers M2 money supply. And then when Janet Yellen spends that back out of the TGA, it increases M2 by the amount it lowered it initially with the purchases of the treasuries. So that's where Janet Yellen got the uh, $100 billion in this example for the stimmy checks. So it was absorbed by the market. But you could say, okay, George, but that $100 billion eventually went on to the Fed's balance sheet. And a lot of those market participants might have been in there buying just because they knew that they could flip it to the Fed with a bit of a profit. And that may be true, but that's how the, the, the process works. And then what the Fed does is say, okay, we're going to do $100 billion in quantitative easing. And then they buy directly from the primary dealers. So the Fed doesn't say, hey, primary dealers, we want you to buy from non-banks so we increase M2. They just say, just buy. <laughs> it's just buy. And then the primary dealer will go out there and buy, you know, in the secondary market and the, wherever they're getting the best price or the best spread or whatever. So if they're taking those treasuries and flipping them to the Fed, and they're getting those off the bank's balance sheets, then that transaction in and of itself doesn't impact M2 because now we're just talking about the reserves on the Fed's balance sheet. But if those primary dealers are buying from non-banks, then that is going to increase M2 to your earlier point. So hopefully, I know I kind of took a, I explained the entire process, but that's how Janet Yellen got the money for the stimulus chips. So it's a mix of Fed auctions and QE? Of treasury auctions. And then it, it, let's just assume for a moment that the Fed was not doing quantitative easing. The Janet Yellen still most likely would have been able to receive $100 billion or sell $100 billion worth of treasuries because the, the foreign entities, you know, the dollar being the world reserve currency, there's most likely going to be demand for those treasuries, but she may have had to pay a higher price. So it's not that that she it, without the Fed, she wouldn't have been able to get the hundred billion. It's that she may have had to pay a little bit higher interest rate without the Fed or without the market participants that bought them to begin with knowing that they could most likely flip them to the Fed for a little bit of a profit. Now, there's a very good argument that would say there was literally no impact whatsoever because at certain times there's such a significant demand, even when the government is deficit spending, like a drunken sailor, there's still times when the demand for treasuries is so high that... Uh, even with the Fed doing quantitative easing, it might not have impacted the interest rate at all. But my point is to make it clear, especially with the dollar, 
and that's the exorbitant priv privilege that the United States has, it's not really an issue of will they be able to get the money without the Fed doing QE. It's more so just a matter of what interest rate. Okay. Does that make a little bit more sense? Yeah, uh, to some degree. I just always thought that it was just purely QE uh, reserves used to purchase treasuries, and then uh, they then gave those proceeds to, to Janet Yellen, and, and that's what they used to uh, to fund all the stimulus that's resulted in all the inflation we're seeing uh, globally. Yeah, I mean, in a roundabout way, we're saying the same thing. It's okay. just, it's just if you kind of map out the step-by-step -step process and look at the balance sheets, it's basically like the uh, Federal Reserve buying directly from the, the Treasury. But again, what I'm saying is the Federal Reserve didn't need to buy those Treasuries in order for Janet Yellen to sell them because there were plenty of buyers that were more than willing to, uh, with, the, with the exception of uh, a short time during, you know, when like March of 2020 or something like that. But usually, uh, Janet Yellen has plenty of buyers for those treasuries without the Fed. All right. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, just just my last point here. Yeah. Um, do you think that, that you're kind of helping um, the Fed get away with uh, deflecting the true cause of inflation when you use terms like asset price inflation and consumer price inflation? Because consumer prices don't cause inflation and neither do asset prices. It's just inflation. But when you use it in those terms, you're giving, you're giving the listener the opinion that it is those things other than the Fed that is responsible for the source of expanding um, the supply of money and credit. Yeah, well, I, I would argue that usually that is true. Uh, usually it is not the Federal Reserve that's in charge of ex or that we can blame on expanding the money supply or credit granted there are periods of time when it is true the federal reserve assists the government or assists the additional supply of currency units uh to a significant degree by stepping in and doing something like they did in world war ii world war one during covid during the pandemic but if you look at you know, long periods of time, uh, the, the the Federal Reserve is, is almost insignificant in terms of the global monetary system or even the domestic monetary system and how many currency units are out there chasing goods and services. So it's not a binary thing. It, it's, it's just a matter of to what degree is the Fed impacting it over long periods of time. And I would argue you know, based on their own balance sheet, and then just comparing that to M2, that over long periods of time, they have very, very, very little impact whatsoever. So to, to focus on exclusively, let's say, on eliminating the Fed, instead of focusing more so on persuading people of the benefits of limited government and, and less taxation, I, I think our, our time is better served focusing on persuading the general public, although I would also argue for the elimination of the Fed, but not because of the manipulation of the money supply, but because of the manipulation 
of the price of money on the front end of the curve and because they they do lead to or the central bank does lead to bailouts and and those are the two cardinal sins as to why i would want to eliminate the fed and as a perk you know you might not have them around to supply the money like they did in 1862 well the fed didn't but uh you know, to supply the, the backup like they did in World War One or World War II. But uh, my main argument for getting rid of the Fed would be, or 98% of my argument for getting rid of the Fed would be the manipulation of the price of money and to eliminate bailouts. And then 2% of it would be the perk of not having them there to back up the government when they went to war. Okay, let's see. So we've got Mr. Fried, we'll get him up here. Looks like is that Fried? Oh, Fried Chicken Finance. Okay. All right, Mr. Chicken, you're up, my friend. Awesome, man. This is great, man. George, I'm a big fan. Uh, Thank you. I didn't think you're gonna bring me up, so I'm a little stuck here. But, uh, uh, how do you see, you know, the outlook moving forward? As you know, the economic cycle seems to have been seems to be changing. You know, now that zero interest rate policy doesn't seem to be you know, continuing to move forward at this moment, you know, and quantitative easing is basically a thing of the past. I think we could argue if they come back with it. Um, how do you see uh, asset prices moving forward over the next five years, 10 years, especially if uh, we don't go back to zero interest rate policy? Oh, boy. I don't know if I can give you a projection out five or 10 years. I have no idea. I mean, if I had to give you a base case, but just take it with a grain of salt. I would say that, like the S and P five hundred. If you had to put a gun to my head, I would say probably in real terms, flat for the next five years. I mean, of course, there's going to be times where it goes up and down and volatility and whatnot. But especially if they're not doing quantitative easing, which again, I don't think mechanically impacts it, but psychologically, I think it does. I think that. We are going into an inflationary decade, similar to what we saw in the 1940s and the 1970s, where you had specific spikes of consumer price inflation. Sprinkled on top of that, you had disinflation, and in terms of the 1940s, you even had some deflation literal deflation when prices were actually going down, not just going up at a lower rate. So assuming the 2020s are going to fall into that category and we don't get any more QE and also assuming that interest rates move in cycles like they have for hundreds, thousands of years, uh, you would assume that throughout the rest of the 2020s, although interest rates will most likely fluctuate dramatically over the long haul interest rates will increase so most people here know that interest rates although volatile and up and down basically were on a downward trend from 1981 basically the middle of 1981 all the way down to you know more recently when they hit zero percent and usually interest rate cycles move in 20 or 30 years. This one, obviously, was longer. So call it 40 years. 
So I think the probabilities are high. 2020, an inflationary decade with spikes of inflation, waves of deflation, maybe even, uh, or waves of disinflation, maybe even some deflation, but then also interest rates for the most part going up. And if interest rates are trending up and they're not doing quantitative easing, I think that's a huge headwind for the S&P 500 and for asset prices in general. And especially when you look at the, the, the PE ratios or you look at the housing market right now, as far as the average pricings or the housing market itself adjusted for inflation, and you look at that going all the way back to 1900, you look at that chart, and you can see that home prices, on average, adjusted for inflation, are even higher, even though they come down maybe slightly, are even higher than they were in 2006. So we're talking about nosebleed levels. And it holds true even when you're looking at the price-to-income ratio, which is obviously very important, especially considering we go into a decade where interest rates are going up. So to give you an idea of where the historic norm is or the historic trend line for home prices adjusted for inflation, it was basically where we bought that in 2012. That was kind of the historic average going back to 1900. So assuming we get back down to those levels, and listen, we might not go back in nominal prices. We might just go back in, in terms of inflation adjusted. So you could have nominal prices flat, but every single year, if you got 5% inflation, then over time, you're going to go right back to where you were in 2012. So I think when you look at home prices or just the S&P 500, just using it as a, a broad proxy, and you consider that we are likely going into a new interest rate cycle where we'll trend higher over the next decade and prices are currently at nosebleed levels, that's why my base case would be adjusted for inflation. Prices will most likely be flat over the next, let's say, five years. But I, I could be wrong. I, I definitely wouldn't uh, bet the bank or I wouldn't uh, take that to the bank. <laughs> I wouldn't bet the ranch on that. But that would be my, my base case, just spitballing it. Uh, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I know you and Peter Schiff talk, and he keeps using the term inflationary depression, and I've kind of, like, started thinking about that myself. Is that kind of where you're seeing this go, where, you know, asset prices kind of stay flat, but, you know, consumer goods continue to rise as, you know, inflationary pressures continue? Yeah, what he's talking about specifically is inflation remaining stubbornly high and that creating an environment where real GDP is negative. And then we have high rates of unemployment. So basically, you could say the, the 1970s were a decade. You might not be able to call it an inflationary depression, but you could definitely call it an inflationary recession. So we had high rates of inflation. We had high unemployment, but we had negative real GDP. So you have a nominal GDP increase, but when you adjust for inflation, it's negative. So what Peter's talking about 
is having high rates of inflation throughout the rest of this decade, but to such a significant degree where it's not categorized as a recession, but it's actually categorized as a depression. So instead of having three or four consecutive quarters of negative real GDP at like 0.2% or something like that, and then going into a next wave higher, he, he's looking at it like the 1930s where you've got years on end with negative real GDP, although nominal is positive and, and significantly not just 0.2%, but like, you know, negative two, negative three, negative 4%, something like that. So that's kind of how he's, and I would assume under that environment, asset prices go down in real terms as well. But it, it, that that's kind of what he means by an inflationary depression. This is really about negative real GDP. Understood. Thank you. Sure. Okay, so let's get our next person up here. We've got Donald. Okay. Donald, are you there? Um, I'm a real big fan. I've been watching your program and, and your uh, YouTube channel since almost its uh, inception. Uh, wow. Yeah, they're going for punishment, my friend. No, I can remember you talking about those uh, house flips that you were doing in Colombia and stuff, and so seeing some of those videos as well. And I was like, "Oh, this is this is really some cool stuff." But I have to ask you, what's your favorite pizza topping? First, oh, gee, you have to think. I I don't I I eat pretty healthy. I don't I rarely eat pizza, but if I if I eat pizza, it's probably like Hawaiian or something. Oh, okay. I like this <laughs> pineapple. It's just one thing to take you out of your train of thought just for a second. Um, no, I have to thank you in a roundabout way. I was watching some of your content one day, and in the suggested video list, I made the investment, the best investment I've ever made in my life was because I was watching one of your macro channel uh, videos. Oh, wow. Okay. And in the suggested video list, there came up another video from another a founder of a cryptocurrency, and I invested in it. It turned out to be the best one I've ever invested in. But um, getting back to this topic, what do you think about just the idea of the $1 trillion that the Department of Defense has to play in this whole huge you know, game of, of musical dollars? I mean, the, just the dollars are just rotating all over the place. But they are always going to want their piece of the pie, and it's a huge, huge piece of the pie. Yeah, and it's a great point. You've got so many special interest groups. Yeah, that it. Yeah, you know, how do you break that down? I'll give you one reason to be optimistic. I'm very good friends with Simon Black. And I he's actually going to the next Rebel Capitals live, and I, I do my best to speak at his events. And I was listening to his podcast the other day, and I love how the fact he always goes back in history. And he was talking about England in like the from like seventeen nineties to like 1810, you know, or that range right around there. And he used it as an example as 
to how the, the, the overall population and therefore the government started to see things in a different way where they were really headed down the big government path and doing all this insanity and stupidity that we know about. But then they had just this epiphany, and I can't remember what was the trigger, what was the catalyst, but they started just gradually, and it wasn't all at once, but they just started gradually taking a step back and letting the free market go ahead and operate. One of the, and it worked well. And I remember Simon, he gave specific numbers, and I think, and don't quote me on this, but I think going into that period, their debt to GDP was like 80, 90%. It was, it was relatively high. And fast forward about 10 years or so, and their debt to GDP went down to 30%. And, and they had zero inflation. In fact, I think they might have even had deflation during that time frame. So the only way that they were able to, and I think they reduced taxes as well, if, if I remember the podcast well. So what happened was they actually allowed the free market to take more control. And as a result, their economy grew, which brought down the level of debt to GDP. So that was a specific example of a government or a society, if you will, getting off the road to serfdom that they were not only on, but they were on with their pedal to the metal. And so if they can do it, I think we can do it as well. But it takes me back to the discussion I had with Mike, where I thought my arguments were, were extremely weak. And coming and, and being more specific about how do we get from A to B? Like, let's set aside sound money for a moment. What do you cut from the current government? Would you, uh, Mike said this, wow, you know, and he kind of stumped me. He's like, do you cut Social Security? Good luck with that. Do you cut, to your point, do you cut defense? Good luck with that one. And so what realistically can we do to move the needle, understanding that we can just go ahead and take baby steps? And I think what it, what it starts with is reducing the amount of bureaucracy and eliminating all of these crazy war on XYZ. So if we could just go through... You know, if you if you made Ron Paul emperor for the day or something like that, or if you took all of us on this call and put us in a room and say, okay, well, how do you do it based on where we are today? I, I think we could start with kind of whittling away at all of the government bureaucracy and red tape that gets in the way of the free market doing what it does best. Now, obviously, you're not going to eliminate everything immediately. But just gradually kind of chip away at that. And as you chip away at that, you can start eliminating things like the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on whatever stupid thing the government's at war with. <laughs> you know, 
whatever ambiguous abstract stupidity that the government is quote unquote at war with. I went back and looked at how much money we have spent on it, don't quote me on this, but it's the war on terror as an example. If my memory serves me well, we've spent like nine trillion, nine trillion dollars on the quote unquote war on terror. What does that even do? I mean, that's it's nonsense. It, what has that accomplished uh, other than just misallocating resources, malinvestment, and, and, getting people rich through the Cantillon effect. And not, it's same thing for the war on drugs. There was one of them where the number was just... Actually, let me take that back. Maybe that was $9 billion. No, it had to be more than $9 billion. But it was a very large number. Maybe not $9 billion. But it was maybe $90 billion. It was a very large number. And the war on drugs, I think, was the was the winner. And then you even go back to Lyndon Johnson, and we all know the guns and butter. But what I didn't realize is, and I think this was Nixon, that he came out with the war on cancer. <laughs> and I think we know who won that one, unfortunately. But they spent like, whatever, billions and billions of dollars. And, and not just the spending, but we have to think about this from a standpoint of cost benefits understanding the huge misallocation of resources and how that distorts the economy and how it impedes progress from the private sector. So when you calculate all that and then you say, what an, an insane boondoggle where the costs just far outweigh the benefits. So my point is I think those things are just very low-lying fruit that we could do that would have a big impact without decreasing kind of the some of these sacred cows like social security or like defense spending or let's look at welfare i think milton friedman had a great idea with universal basic income now that said this is not the universal basic income that andrew yang talked about and and this is one of my hot buttons and I know you've been watching my videos for a long time, so you probably remember back in 2019 when I first started the channel and I did some videos where I was, that's some pretty strong words for Andrew Yang. And that's, and as you know, that's very rare for me because I don't like really, you know, ruffling people's feathers. That's not my, my style. But if someone, you know, some people can really piss me off. Dave Ramsey used to piss me off a lot because he used to talk a lot of smack about Peter's dad, and I thought that was absolutely unacceptable, unacceptable. But then the the thing that really got under my skin about Andrew, and he might be a nice guy, I don't know, I've never met him, but he was, remember when he was uh, on the campaign trail, he was talking about, well, this universal basic income, it's just like Milton Friedman said, and he was using Milton Friedman's name, and that really pissed me off, because when you look at what Andrew Yang was proposing. It was nothing like Milton Friedman was proposing. He just used the same name yeah. or whatever. And I was like, I remember that. man, that gets under my skin. But anyway, I don't want to go down a massive tangent. But if you looked at the way Milton Friedman proposed doing it, basically wiping out, getting rid of the entire welfare system, 
gone. All the bureaucracy, all the red tape, gone. Get rid of it. And then just replace it by just sending every single American a check for, let's say, a thousand bucks a month, something like that. That, that, although it would not be my ideal, I'm not saying that would be optimal, but I think it would be far better than the system we currently have. And it would go a long way in reducing a lot of the bureaucracy, red tape, and therefore the size of the overall government. So that's kind of me just spitballing as to some of the things that I think we could focus on to actually move the needle and um, and really impact change in a way that's realistic to get us from A to B. I, I just wanted to add, um, I grew up, I'm born and raised in California, and then I've moved uh, 20 years ago, I moved to Denmark. So I've seen two different governments in action. And the Danish government, the one thing that is really cool about the Danish government is it is fairly small and compact. And its activities and actions are quick and very um, pointed. I mean, when they decide that they're going to tear up a road to put in new uh, storm drain systems, they don't like bicker and talk with the public or anything. They just make the plans and they do it. And that's really it, it really blows you away how fast things get done here. Uh, it, it, it really amazes me all the time, but that, that too, but we also have like, there's no, uh, they're, they're going paperless. There's a lot of stuff that's already paperless. Like when you have government offices that send you mail, yeah. it's literally, yeah. you know, e-box there's, there's no paper mail anymore. Uh, that's something that they even took old people to the libraries and taught them how to use uh, email systems, you know, years ago. So there's a lot of those things that can be cut out of the American, you know, bureaucracy loop, you know, so to speak. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's just, yeah, the bureaucracy in America, uh, from what I see, has just grown and grown and grown. And it's a big, ugly beast. And yeah, I mean, it's it going to be. Back, I mean, it goes back to what Friedman always told us that there's nothing yeah. more temporary, that, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. And right. <laughs> so what we got to realize yeah. we do a cost benefit analysis in creating, you know, the next task force or whatever, or the next government agency to micromanage this or that. We have to realize that. You, you're starting small, but let's fast forward 20 years, and the probability is very, very high that that small group continues to grow and grow and grow and finds problems to solve. You know, it's like a hammer. If that's all you got, every, everything looks like a nail. And I remember Thomas Sowell talking about the, I think it was the Environmental Protection Agency. And initially, they were set up to ensure that Americans had clean water, something like that. And they they did that pretty well. But then after they pretty much accomplished that goal, then they've got two options. Well, we just go ahead and dissolve and all of us are out of a job or we create another problem that doesn't really exist to go ahead and solve it to make sure that we're still employed. Well, what do you think those government, <laughs> what do you think the government think we're going to do? Yeah, they got to stay relative or relevant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like yeah. you hear all of these stories 
which I think was one of the main catalysts to Thomas Sowell going from being a socialist to one of the heroes, the champions of freedom and liberty and free market capitalism, is he worked in a government agency and he saw that they had really, their priority had nothing to do with finding the truth or finding possible solutions based on trade-offs and you know cost benefits their their main focus and priority was just spending enough money to where next year they would have an even bigger budget to where they could spend even more like that was the main purpose for the entity even existing once you got inside of that ecosystem and anyway i could go on and on and on get it thanks a lot george for having me up i really appreciate it um you know i yeah i can talk about this stuff for hours there is there is the funny thing is 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 i'm seeing things that i would have not normally seen before and the one thing that i see now is that there are government entities and agencies here in denmark even that are doing things that are incredibly wasteful and when you see it it's like wow why are they doing this? And it's because there is kind of like this umbrella of protection that they have where when a person, you know, just a regular old John Doe citizen, he goes up and says, hey, why is this happening? They always have some kind of a way to shuffle you off and, and get you to, you know, pay attention to something else. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it's gotten it's gotten a little bit out of hand. But yeah, there's always a cost benefit analysis, right? Yep. Yep. All right, buddy. Thanks thanks for being an OG subscriber, man. I I really appreciate that. I remember all those real estate blogs and, uh, I just, I understand that people's most valuable resource is their time. So the fact that you have taken so much time to watch my videos over the past few years really means a lot to me and I sincerely appreciate it. Like I said, thank you, because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have found one of my very best uh, investments ever. So, yeah, thank you very much, George. And uh, many, many, many years of uh, continued success. Thank you, my friend. All right, let me go ahead and I'm going to remove Donald. And then let's bring up, we'll get a couple more, and then I'll, I'm going to shoot off to dinner. So we've got T is next. Let me bring him up. All right, T, are you there, buddy? Hey, George. Yeah, I'm here. Awesome. What can I do for you? Oh, man. Well, uh, first of all, I want to just ex- extend a personal invitation to the Tucson uh, Bitcoin meetup tonight. Don't know if you can make it, but I'm <laughs> on my way there right now. Well, I'm in Medellin, Colombia, uh, so it, it, it would be tough to get there in time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember way back you saying something about Tucson. I think you might have lived here. Maybe still have a place here, so I just thought I'd try yeah, well, thank you for the invitation. Um, the the real thing though that I wanted to ask you about um, has to do with uh, a measurement that I I don't hear often talked about, which is the velocity of money. And um, okay, and you probably are familiar with Lacey Hunt, world renowned. Oh, I sure am. Okay. He's one of my favorite. Cool. He he did um, some research a while back around the velocity of money. Um, some excellent reporting and research. I recommend everyone look into into that. 
And his, his conclusion, if you look at the data, the velocity of money has been on a steady decline since 1990. Uh, it's just gone down. That's, that's in general, you know, the, the number of um, transactions that happen, right? People that are exchanging yeah. money, right? So his conclusion was the reason why the velocity of money is, has gone down since the 90s is because we haven't seen uh, innovation. Um, and so I'm wondering if you've done any research on that yourself, and if you think that there is any kind of innovative technology that could help increase that metric, which is one of the underlying fundamental metrics when it comes to GDP. Yeah, so just to be clear for everyone that's listening, velocity is a pretty simple equation. You take nominal GDP and you divide by M2 or you divide by the, the money supply. And so when you look at the 1990s, you saw that M2 money supply was pretty much flat, but we had significant GDP increases, which is why velocity, if you just look at that chart, went up substantially. And then you see velocity start to go down because the amount of money increased, but the nominal GDP did not increase at the same rate. So velocity is very difficult because you can have velocity increases in certain components while overall velocity remains flat. And, and then you have to be able to define and quantify M2. So I use M2 all the time. But I use it as kind of like a broad stroke type of metric. If we're trying to really get down to the nitty gritty and pinpoint what we need to use to divide into nominal GDP or nominal GDP divided by what to get the most accurate reading of velocity, I don't know that it's M2. Why? because there's so many dollars that are in the shadows with the euro dollar system that we talked about before. But even inside the United States, I think there's a lot of dollars on the balance sheet of the banks that are just interbank dollars that they have created amongst themselves. And let's just say, you know, the, well, I was gonna use a technical term, but basically the, the bank accounts that they have with one another and the shadows off balance sheet, who knows? And then how do you define money? Is it treasury money because it has the same purchasing power? Uh, I don't know. And so to find out, you know, what specific number to use to say, okay, I've got nominal GDP, let's divide it by this. I think that's very, very difficult. So, but I don't know that it's, that it isn't worthwhile. You know, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but when you're looking at velocity, I think you're going to get a lot more value if you look at it in terms of buckets. So one of the reasons I think you have a decrease in velocity is because such a, a, a larger percentage, because of the financialization of the economy, I think a larger percentage of M2 overall went into a low velocity bucket. So on the balance sheet of a financial institution, as an example, if you have a higher percentage, let's just say, that there's only two entities in the economy. You've got a hedge fund 
and you've got the average Joe. That's it. And during the 1990s, or prior to that, let's say that the majority of M2 was on the balance sheet of the average Joe. So the average Joe is going out there and buying cars and hamburgers and going out to Olive Garden and paying insurance and rent and all these things. So you, you, you would have a much higher degree of velocity. Now, if you take it to an extreme and took the majority of M2 and now parked it on the hedge fund's balance sheet, well, it's still M2, but the hedge fund isn't out there buying hamburgers and cars and houses. Well, maybe they're buying houses, but <laughs> but you, you, you get what I'm saying. So I think yeah. that could be a result of the increased financialization of the economy. And I think there's a strong argument there for saying, well, that's definitely decreased the overall GDP that we uh, that we should have had if the real economy would have stayed in control. The example I always use, I'm sure you guys have or maybe seen it if you watch my whiteboards, is a hot air balloon. And if you think, yeah, we've all seen them on Sunday mornings. And you've got that giant balloon on top, and then you've got the little teeny-weeny basket underneath that. But that basket has to go wherever the balloon goes. And I think that's a good way to look at the economy. In a healthy economy that we, or a healthier economy that we might have had prior to all this financialization, prior to velocity going down in the 1990s, I would argue the real economy was that balloon, and the financial economy was the basket. So wherever the real economy went, that basket would follow. But now I think it's completely the opposite, where the financial economy is the balloon and the real economy is the basket. And therefore, with that balloon being bigger and bigger and bigger and occupying a larger and larger quantity or percentage of M2 money supply, because that's in the low velocity bucket, you would assume that velocity in general would decline and you would by the way also assume that nominal gdp would decline as well and i think that's pretty much what we've seen yeah that's good feedback that's that's helpful and then and it goes to show like it, it gets into a whole nother discussion sort of about the the gini coefficient right and just the fact that if the money is parked at you know the hedge fund or the institution that's not contributing to the velocity then that squeezes the middle class. So what do you think there there are, you know, any like innovative technologies right now or anything out there that may help increase the velocity? Or do you think that the velocity of money will just continue to go down? Ah, uh, yeah, I forgot. I'm sorry, that was your main question. Two things there I think would help. I I, I see technology as a derivative of free market capitalism. So in order to increase technologies that might improve GDP, I think we first and foremost have to increase the level of free market capitalism. So that goes back to my argument about getting government out of the picture, reducing the size of government, at least as far as its impact on the real economy and on the private sector. So that would be my first approach. And then I think once you release the shackles that are on the private sector, then they would create a, a lot more 
of this technology where you could see the benefits accrue or be uh, captured in increasing GDP numbers, nominal and 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 real GDP. So, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to wonder if I can actually speculate on this question, but I, I didn't want to interrupt. Uh, I'm wondering if, if Latif is getting at, because he mentioned he, he's a Bitcoiner, is he's wondering if, if perhaps Lightning Network is this improved technology that can improve velocity, right? That that if you can send these very tiny microtransactions at hyperspeed, you know, you could have this entire room of people streaming sats to George Gammon or to, to the speakers. You could have people receiving employment checks, you know, daily, hourly, every single minute. You could have machine-to-machine payments with all the AI. I mean, you could drive over a bridge. It automatically is just deducting payments for every miles that that, that, that you've gone. There's there's huge payment potential there. But I would speculate, um, and, and perhaps Steve doesn't want to hear this, but 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 I do think Lightning Network, um, as promised as is, has huge limitations. It's difficult to build multi-party apps with it. It requires expensive capital lockups. It requires users to be online at all times to, to receive updates and file disputes. And, and, and the UX, the user experience, is, is inherently custodial. And there are some potential improvements to that, but I do think there are perhaps better alternatives to Lightning Network. But maybe you guys want to riff on that. I, I think that is a type of technology where if you can do these transactions per second, you know, without a blockchain, but on like a peer-to-peer network, then you can do, you know, millions, tens of millions of transactions per second. And, and that is a way to kind of, hugely increased velocity maybe that's yeah an interesting topic yeah absolutely I, I, what I, my comment there would be we've got to take a step back and remember that the benefit or the wealth if we're talking about increasing the overall wealth of society increasing the standard of living you're not going to do it just through velocity it's going to be the additional increase of the amount of goods and services So if that velocity that you're referring to equaled or resulted in an increase of goods and services, then I think it is true that would increase the wealth. And uh, I'd have to think through how that would be reflected in real GDP, but that, that would be beneficial. But if we're just increasing velocity to increase velocity without a corresponding increase in the goods and services, I, I don't know that that would be beneficial. Yeah, I I um I just wanted to speculate on that with you guys. I you know, nobody knows the future. I think um I think crypto has a place in the future and I think it's still very early and I do uh think that the Lightning network is is proving itself to be a very frictionless technology. Um, I'm a technologist and a crypto enthusiast myself, and I just don't appreciate only Bitcoin, but I appreciate um, Ethereum as well. And there are a couple others. I would say, you know, 98, 99% of crypto is still unproven, but there have been several cryptocurrencies that just continue to grow in adoption. I would separate both Bitcoin and Ethereum out from the entire definition of crypto. Um, But I do think that... uh, the way that society is trending toward sort of this more uh, control-based economy where the Fed is, you know, going to monitor your account if you're transacting more than $600 or whatever, 
is going to lead people to look for alternatives. And it's sort of almost going backward to almost like a, a barter system, right? And if you have um, an alternative form of value, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or gold or, or whatever that be, you may decide to transact uh, or exchange goods and services for, for that. And that could increase the velocity. And crypto is extremely frictionless. You can send it across the world in, you know, minutes. So I, I don't know. That, those are just my thoughts. And I really appreciate uh, you having me up here, George, and, and listening to this. Thank you. Yeah, no, great comments. And just the last thing I'd say there on your on your point is I, I am all for improving the system, but one of the big hurdles Bitcoin is going to have it, it, and I'm not talking about Bitcoin being a digital asset or a store of value. I'm talking about Bitcoin being global money to the point where everything in the world is priced in Bitcoin. The issue we have there, one of the hurdles for Bitcoin, and I'm not saying that it won't overcome this hurdle. I'm saying that we have to acknowledge it and think it through, is it's up against the most powerful network in human history. And the network I'm referring to is the United States dollar. If you understand the global monetary system and the euro dollar market and a lot of the things that we've discussed on this channel and the commercial or on this Twitter feed and the commercial bank is you understand how incredibly entrenched and powerful this dollar network is. And one of the arguments that I hear from Bitcoiners as to why it'll be very unlikely for another cryptocurrency to compete with Bitcoin is because of the network effect of Bitcoin. Okay, but you could take that argument for the dollar and times it by a million or <laughs> whatever. And that's the strength of the dollar network. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying I'm a fan of that. I'm not saying that I want that system to remain in place indefinitely. I'm not saying that I don't want the uh, Bitcoin to overcome that. But I'm, I'm just pointing that out is a huge, huge hurdle that I think needs to be acknowledged. And, and, and I think the argument there would be, well, Bitcoin is so superior as a form of money people will opt out of the current network and it will be like people moving from MySpace over to Facebook where, you know, Bitcoin's Facebook and the dollar is MySpace. And I, I get that argument, but Bitcoin is going to have to be not just better, but it's going to have to be insanely better and not just for the people who understand how it works but probably more so for the average Joe and Jane. And right now, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know that the average Joe that just goes to work from nine to five, that's, uh, you know, buys groceries once a week, that just pays his car insurance. I don't know that he would, I don't know that his daily life would be dramatically better 
to the point where he, he's, he's really noticing the improvement if he were to use Bitcoin as opposed to just the United States dollar and his ATM or debit card. And now, so, uh, let me be clear. I'm not saying that in the future it won't be infinitely better, but I'm saying that right now, as it stands, I don't know that Bitcoin is better enough to compensate for the entrenched, unbelievable network of the United States dollar and the euro dollar system as it is now. So I think I have an unconventional view on this. Um, for context, I, I do feel like I have watched many, if not all of your videos with Snyder and shadow banking in the euro dollar system. So I think to the extent that someone can understand that system, I, th I think I have a reasonable um, understanding of it. And so my question, and this is not popular in Bitcoin circles, but, but why does Bitcoin need to be the unit of account? Why can't we have a system where we have a Bitcoin backed dollar? And I had alluded to, to, to this early on when I kind of spoke, but, but we're now seeing ways that you can borrow against your Bitcoin at 0% interest. So that product is good. But as a byproduct of that, we're creating a Bitcoin backed dollar. And so you have two essentially camps here. You have the, the global camp that says, hey, this Bitcoin thing is really cool, but I live on, you know, $5 a day or, or whatever, $5 a month or, or something like I need the dollar stable unit account. And it's like, well, fine, here is this Bitcoin backed dollar that was minted out of the collateral of Bitcoin that you can use and you can transact instantly. We can get bank accounts of, of dollar bank stablecoin accounts to people all around the world instantly without opening up, um, just by opening up a wallet. You know, it's free, it's instant. That immediately gives dollar denominated accounts to, to everyone across the world. All of those people, they demand dollars. As they demand these Bitcoin backed dollars, we drive more value into the Bitcoin collateral, which allows more people to borrow against it. And we create this kind of flywheel effect. Once we have this, then we have people who can take these Bitcoin backed dollars and actually spend them on things like the Lightning Network. And I think this is the key that a lot of Bitcoiners miss and, and why I kind of have a contrarian view on this is I do not see a world where Bitcoin is the unit of account, but I do see a world where Bitcoin could be the store of value and we can use Bitcoin backed dollars as the medium of exchange and the unit of account. That I think um, reconciles a lot of the issues that, that you and Steider may have with this system. Yeah, I think my... my... The first thing that comes to mind, and this is by no means my definitive view, is the the issue of volatility. It's this weird chicken and egg type thing where you reduce volatility by adoption, but how do we get enough adoption if it's still volatile? And to have, and, and maybe... You know, you you can educate me here, but to have a a dollar that's backed by Bitcoin, I don't know how you transition to that in a world where we we've got the volatility that we see in, in Bitcoin daily, if if things aren't priced in Bitcoin. And so I don't know. Do you do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I think those are all very interesting observations. I think, um, you know, for one, it, it's definitely within the realm of possibility that the U.S. adopts the uh, the Bitcoin standard in order to further dollar hegemony. For sure, that's um, absolutely an option. I mean, if you're going to only if you're going to be binary about it, right? You're going to say the government is going to squash it, 
or the government's going to adopt it. But there's also somewhere in between. Um, and so there's multiple possibilities. I, I think the big difference is, you know, um, Bitcoin is trustless. It runs on software. Uh, it works because people set up computer mining operations around the world in full nodes and they, they participate in the network. It's, it's really a trustless system. Whereas what we have in place right now is a very whimsical system led by unelected officials. And, um, you know, they pull their levers when they feel like they need to. And there's, there's consequences to that. And one of which is you can't project into the future what the inflation rate is going to be. But with blockchain, you know, every 10 minutes, six and a half Bitcoin are going to be unlocked. And then at the next halving, uh, which I think is almost a year away, it'll be um, 3.25 Bitcoin will be unlocked. So it's a very predictable uh, inflationary mechanism run on a trustless system, which I think people appreciate because it doesn't allow um, banks to create money out of thin air. It um, gets away from this double spend accounting problem we have and this rehypothecation problem we, that we have. So it's, it's to me a better, a better system. Now, whether or not it happens in my lifetime, like the, the Bitcoinization of the world happens in my lifetime, I don't know. I, I, you know, that is really hard to predict. But we do know that um, throughout history, money always changes forms. And um, it seems as though we're coming to the end of the dollar history in the sense that the government is weaponizing the dollar by, you know, taking Russia off the SWIFT financial system and basically forcing other countries to decide whether or not they want to, you know, uh, they, they want to use treasury bonds as uh, a standard value. for... Yeah, store value. So I, I don't know. You know, I, I think it's interesting to think about. I am, yes, a Bitcoiner, but I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist by any means. I think there, there are a few proven cryptocurrencies that will remain um, with with stable use, use cases, good use cases. So yes, my I, I think that we've got to differentiate between base layer or base money, broad money monetary inflation and consumer price inflation so obviously it's true that if bitcoin were if we're on a bitcoin standard you would not have the ability to increase the base layer 21 million that's all you got or it's to your point if you're not at the 21 million it's predictable as far as how the base layer is going to grow but then you've got the potential, like we were saying earlier, of fractional reserve banking, or even if it wasn't banking, you know, if you were all storing cold storage in your back pocket, it, you still, I think there would be fiduciaries that were offering an interest rate that would be attractive to people that were accumulating Bitcoin, and they would most likely offer a higher interest rate if people allowed them to create paper claims on the Bitcoin that people were giving them to quote-unquote invest. And then assuming that the market participants accepted those paper claims, then you could envision a scenario where although you don't have a base layer monetary inflation, you have a broad layer. And the example I would use is going right back to the 1800s and from 1870 
to 1900, like we said before, on a strict gold standard with no central bank or anything like that, we saw an increase in M2 money supply by 400%, which is the exact same increase that we saw from 1990 to 2020 when we were on a complete fiat system. So that's why I would first and foremost differentiate between an expansion, a monetary inflation of the base layer and then potentially a monetary inflation of the broad money supply. Assuming that human beings were attracted or will be attracted to a higher interest rate in the future, and therefore you will have the free market produce these entities that possibly have the ability to create paper claims on that specific base layer. Now moving on to the consumer price inflation. Again, if we have enough government as far as a percentage of the overall economy, although I do think the probability is low, but I don't think the probability is zero. And I do think the probability is high enough for us to allocate mental bandwidth to. You could envision where you have a fixed base layer, and especially if you have a fluctuating broad layer where you have fractional reserve, but even if you had a fixed base layer, if the population at large voted, let's just assume for a moment, they voted to have taxes at a 30% sales tax, let's just assume that, then even under those conditions, you would still have quote-unquote big government and possibly, maybe not, but possibly a enough government as far as meddling in the economy to produce consumer price inflation. Because at the end of the day, we've got to look at the, the, monetary, the amount of quote-unquote money, let's say, that's chasing goods and services. So those are two separate components. If you have the money supply flat, but if you have goods and services actually going down as a result of government meddling and distortions in the economy, then you could you could see an environment where we could have consumer price inflation while having a fixed money, or excuse me, while having a fixed base money and having a fixed broad money. And again, I want to be clear. I am not saying that that is highly probable. But I am saying it's above zero, and it's something I think is worth thinking about. I think... Um, hey, th thanks for bringing me up, George and, and David. I appreciate that. Appreciate your guys' time, and I uh, just want to say thank you one last time before I step down and, and head in. You guys are awesome. Yeah, appreciate the comments, man. Absolutely. Look forward to the next one. Okay, cool. Do um, you have anything to add to that, buddy? Yeah, so... You know, I, I want to make clear, like this relationship that you mentioned between like kind of building this system between base money and broad money and having these arrangements where where Bitcoin can be the base money, we can now use these protocols, which substitute out for free banks that can operate on varying degrees of risk, where some of these can be fully reserved, some of these can be fractional reserved, but all of them are fully transparent and auditable. And so I think that yeah. Yeah. answers your, your, your question where it's like that space is really starting to break open right now. On top oh, I get it. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you kind of mentioned um, this kind of like the tax authority issue, but if, if the entire system is, is parallel and independent of, of kind of government controlled rails, 
it drastically reduces their ability to kind of coerce and compel with taxation. If you can, if you can go to like very early on in this, uh, in this podcast, you kind of mentioned where like, what happens if, you know, they just stick a POS system in there and they start taxing people on, on sales tax. Like to some extent, a lot of that is unavoidable, but if you have a separate independent system where people, people can receive these, these peer to peer payments, these kind of base versus broad money payments, like independent of those systems, it makes it much harder to kind of levy these, the, the, these onerous taxes. So I think there's hope for, for kind of what you're saying it, it, and, and like it exists. And I, and I think people like Lynn, I'll just end with this. Like if you read Lynn's most recent article, like for the first time, she's starting to kind of hint at some of these protocols that may exist. So I am appealing to authority a little bit here, but, but I think it gives some of my arguments credibility. Yeah. Well, again, I, I think this is totally possible. And I, I know that it's definitely credible if, if you and, and if Lynn are, are, are discussing it and giving it serious thought. Uh, I, I, but I do think that although it may make things harder, I don't know that it makes things hard enough to where we wouldn't see what we would categorize as big government, especially if the people were voting for it. That, that's the thing. It, it's not that the government puts a, a gun to our head. Well, I guess they do and say, give me your tax money. But it's not like they, they put a gun to our head and say, hey, vote for higher taxes. It, it's, it's, it's the people. The, 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 I mean, I hate to say it, but my good buddy, Art Berman, who has a, a completely opposite political view, but he always says that the society gets the government they deserve. And... It, even within the, the, the technology that you're talking about, I, I still think if you've got a society that favors the welfare state or, or favors whatever, 30% of the GDP going to the government in form of tax revenue, even if that tax revenue is a little harder to collect, you're still going to run into the same problem although it may be to a slightly lesser degree. But again, if you remember, my whole point there is just to point out that uh, I don't, although I think sound money is definitely desirable, and I, I see the benefits of gold, I see the benefits of Bitcoin, I just don't think that in and of itself is a silver bullet or a panacea, and we still have to do a lot of hard work to make sure that we are getting the limited government that we want regardless of what we're using for money. You know, I think one good example or analogy that I discussed the other day is using a hammer to build a house. So using that hammer, and let's say that's the, the, the type of money you're using, whether it's gold or Bitcoin, you may have a very efficient hammer. It may be the most efficient tool possible to get the job done, but it still requires you to get off your butt and build the house. The hammer isn't going to build the house for you, <laughs> and that's what, and that's pretty much uh, the, the premise of my argument. Yeah, I think the what you say makes makes sense. You know, you you've kind of circled a couple times on this idea of like how do we define small government, and I was like thinking about that on like while you're talking past like hours yeah. like honestly that's like a really good good question i don't think that we can define small government by by, by saying let's be at x percent spending of gdp or some sort of quantitative measure 
but instead a, a qualitative assessment of, of how much leverage do individual citizens have to hold governments accountable to a balance sheet. And I would argue that voting has essentially zero leverage. <laughs> I mean, I, I know we say we can vote, like, but, but, but not really. But, but if you have more tools to opt out of the financial system, which funds them, so by having hard assets and then by having these kinds of tax shelters and then by having the ability to spend and use that money independent of the government, I think that that qualitative measure of citizens can straight up just say, hey, you know, I, instead of voting with my seat, I am voting with, with, with my wallet. I think qualitatively, like that is, is the measure that we want of limited government. If the citizens have that power to, um, uh, to, to attempt to defund the government, like that is, is the measure we're going to. If the citizens ultimately, they don't give a shit and, and, and we go into this 99 government, like I think I kind of agree with you or whoever you reference where it's like the citizens get what they want. But we want to give them the tools to to at least make that decision to try to rebalance the scales. And I don't think we're quite there yet with Bitcoin, but we're on our way. That's the measurement that I look for for small government. I Well, I couldn't agree more. So I don't know if I define small government that way by just the the resources people have at their disposal or the optionality. But I, I could not agree more that that is a good thing. The more options people have, the better it is. And and that would go for, you know, having multiple passports, multiple bank accounts, having purchasing power outside of the system, or that may also, to your point, may include a, a new system of being able to manage your purchasing power and utilize and leverage that purchasing power that's outside of the purview of the, of the government. Uh, there, there is, that's, there's only upside there. You know, that, that, that's definitely, definitely a good thing. Even if there, the majority of the population doesn't utilize the tool, the fact that there are more and more tools that that's definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah. Okay, guys, I think I'm going to go ahead and grab some dinner. I really appreciate everyone and the, the feedback the the questions, everything was, was really, really great. And kind of the genesis of this was I, I was at the gym and I was thinking about all the great discussions I've had with people in the past, like Snyder or Joseph or Bob Murphy or, or Breed Love or any of those guys. And I'm like, you know, they're great discussions and I really enjoy them, but the, the people don't really have a chance to get in the mix and you know kind of raise their hand and they can only do that in the comment section and i don't have a lot of time to read the comments and even if i do you know going back and forth in the comments in just written form that's not really that's not very good that that's that's not uh doesn't have a lot of value there so this i think was a great test and if you guys enjoyed it just let me know i don't know if you can put that on the comments or the tweet or something and if you guys enjoyed it i'll definitely do it again because uh, I really had a good time. So thanks a lot, guys. And I guess, as always, I'll see you on the next video or I'll see you on the next Twitter spaces.